You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. This is the Coach's Corner, a chance for me to just uh, give you some of my latest uh, information that I use to coach couples, people, families, friends, you name it. Today, I'm talking about uh, the path to purposeful retirement. Any of you ready to retire? Just counting down the days. I am. I've got 44 more days. And then I'm out of here. I get my watch and I'm, I'm gone. So if you're planning to retire, you need to have a path, is what I teach. And a path, I basically give four different steps that make up an acronym called PATH to purposeful retirement. It is not enough, folks, to just be done because uh, the irony of being in the tension of going to work every day is it actually, in many regards, is a very, very healthy, helpful, motivating, purposeful thing for you. And the minute you get rid of that driver, you might actually start having a come apart in your life I've seen many of my clients so excited for retirement, and the minute they pulled the plug, they created a big air bubble in their pipeline of life. And then they went into a drought where they weren't getting satisfaction. They didn't have purpose. They didn't have passion. They weren't being active. They fall. They fell out of shape. They got into bad habits. They weren't accomplishing certain things. And so... That's what we're trying to do is make sure if you're going to go forward to retirement, man, good on you. Congratulations. That's super cool. But let me give you four basic things you need to make sure you're focusing on for PATH, the path to your purposeful retirement. First, you got to have purpose and passion, right? That's the P of PATH. Purpose and passion, simply, I'm a big believer that if you don't have purpose, you will perish if you don't have a, something in your life that drives you, that pushes you, that stretches you, that you're passionate about, you are going to pay for it. That passion and that purpose makes it so you can be driven to keep going in life. You have to have some attractor, something you are attracted to that you're wanting and that drives you. So before you pull the plug on your job, which by the way, a lot of times that's what your job's been fulfilling for you. By the way, a lot of us, too, have fallen out of love with our job, and we don't feel fulfilled, probably because we lost our purpose. We lost our passion. So before you retire, make sure that you have spent some time identifying your purpose in life. You still have 25, let's say 30 years, however long you're going to live. What is your purpose in life? And one way I suggest you do it is sit down and imagine What you want everyone to say at your 95th birthday, your 90th birthday. What do you want everyone to say about your purpose? What do you want your kids to say, your family, your coworkers, your friends, neighbors, everybody you will affiliate with and associate with through your retirement? What do you want them to say? And I'd write it all down. Find out what these people are going to say because inside of what you want these people to say about you, you're going to start to see your purpose. Man, he was so full of service. I will never forget when he retired 
how what an amazing grandfather he turned into. Great. That's so important to know. I will never forget what an empowering and incredible relationship he created with mom after retirement. What do you want these people to say about your life after you've retired? And start to identify it and write it down. Because if you know that you want to be an incredible grandpa, that's an important purpose to know about before you retire. If you want to know that you're going to be an incredible spouse, that's important to know. If you want these people to say, I love how grandpa, even after he quit, he never quit you know, changing lives. He never quit serving people. That's important to know. So reconnect to your purpose by doing that activity. Get it written out. Find your passion too. Before you end it and you're done with work, find your passion. A lot of times in companies, they have activities, they have classes you can go to, they have resources, they have training, they have development tools online, they have access to information that you should be using to find out what your passions are. What hobbies are you going to continue doing in your life when you retire? What hobbies do you want to start doing? If you read a book, a magazine, or watch a movie about anything in the world, if you could go do that anytime, what topic would you go choose to watch? World War II war movies? Is that what you want to watch? Okay, that could be a passion. It's important you know what your passions are. What activities do you do? And when you're doing them, time just flies by. So many people say, yeah, when I retire, I'm going to really go – I'm going to go look up my ancestors. I'm going to go find out about my, you know, my parents, that, my great-great-great-grandparents that came to America. I'm going to go research all of that. Great. If it's not a passion, you're really not going to do that. And if you're not already doing it right now while you have a free second and going to work, you probably aren't going to do it when you're done. So don't create an illusion about what your purpose and your passions are because guess what? If it's not real – You're going to stall. You're probably going to stall. And if you've ever uh, grew up learning how to drive a stick shift, sometimes you just push too much gas and you pop the clutch too fast. Sometimes you don't push enough gas. You've got to figure out the proper balance of this. But before you pull the plug and before you move into retirement, make sure you're clear about your purpose for the next 25 years and your passions, what you love to do. And make sure you're working on them before you get started. Number two in PATH, the PATH to uh, Purposeful Retirement, is make sure you have activities and accomplishments. One of the crazy truths about work is it drives you every day to be active and to accomplish things. Don't forget Newton's first law of motion, that an object in motion will stay in motion, right, unless it's otherwise acted upon. You are probably, because you go to work every day, fairly used to being active. The minute you quit, you are now acting upon that, and you might find yourself without momentum or without inertia. Be careful. Be careful. Make sure you are clear about what activities you're going to do, how you're going to choose your activities, how you're going to use your time. I'd start before you retire. I'd put together a plan for your time schedule, what you're going to do with your time, what you're not going to do. What, you will, what will be considered a busy life, right? And what is something you just don't want to get caught up doing? I would sit down with your kids and I'd talk to them about your retirement. What activities are you going to do? I will, we are totally excited to come babysit the kids, but we are not permanent babysitters. So as grandparents, we will be there easily once a week. We'd love to sit there and babysit the kids for you. And it's only going to be once a week. And there will be some weeks we won't do it. 
Be clear on your accomplishments. What is going to drive you to feel good about yourself? Because at work, a lot of times you get accolades that you aren't going to get when you're retired. And some people need that, right? So think about what we've talked about. You've got to have your purpose and your passion before you retire. You also need to be clear about what activities are going to fill your day up, how you're going to manage your time, and what accomplishments are going to drive you. What are your goals? I'd have a lot of goals set. I'd have a quarter goal, a half-year goal, and a full-year goal set before you ever pull the plug. Now, I know it sounds like, oh, well, I'm just trying to relax for crying out loud. Great. Make that an activity. But after two weeks of relaxing, it's going to just slowly slide into vegging. No, I'm not that kind of guy. Well, sure. You've never had since you were 18 years old. You have not had the chance, the luxury in life to just veg. But if you're retiring, you might. The T in path is to make sure you have the right team of people around you and togetherness. At work, when you're at work, you have a lot of people that are there. They're stimulating. They're fun. You can, you know, talk to you want to and go back to work when you, when you got to get busy and go get stuff done. But just as you have people around you there, I want to make sure that you have the right team around you of social support. Make sure your family are around you. Make sure they're very – you've created space and time for them. Make sure you have the right sense of um, togetherness. Make sure your family's on board with what your goals are. I'd also be really clear about some other things. I'd have somebody that you can talk to about, you know, your hobbies. Who's going to be on the hobby team? Who's going to be on the health team? We'll get to that in a few minutes. But I would have a lot of good people around you. What you might find out is you're so excited to just be alone for a while. But remember, the research shows being alone or feeling lonely, either one of those, it's like smoking 16 or 15 cigarettes a day on your health. Being alone is not the goal. I get it for a while. I'm somebody that loves to be alone, believe me. But at some point, you also need to look at other facets of sociability. For example, have friends, old and new friends. This might be a great chance to go back and find your old friends again. Have emotional team ready, maybe some therapists or some coaches that can help you if you sense you might be emotionally impacted by this. Have a spiritual team, church members, your pastor, your, your church leaders, an intellectual team, professional groups, book clubs, teachers, professors. Get back to school. And then um, also you might want to work on your togetherness as a couple. One of the big things I see couples fight a lot about is uh, ever since he came home, he's kind of taking over my life, she says. <laughs> I used to love it when he'd go to work and now I don't even have my own identity anymore and now he's cooking the dinners and he's telling me how to clean the house. You might want to sit down with your spouse before you end up um, retiring and decide how much time do we really need to spend together? How much time is good enough for you? And have those discussions before you do it. Two other things, the H in PATH is health and happiness. If you don't have your health, it's going to feel like you didn't retire at all. So make sure before you leave, use your company resources, use your insurance, get all the testing you can, get a good bill of health, get a really good sense of what you should do, go build a good activity system, a plan, a diet, everything you can to make sure you're going to be healthy and strong. Take care of yourself. Get ready for another strong 25 years. And then last but not least, identify happiness. What is going to actually make you the happiest? Remember, 
you only need about seventy thousand dollars to to feel a sense of happiness. It'll, happiness only correlates to up to about seventy thousand dollars in income. So money doesn't necessarily make you happier. So make sure you have the conversation. How am I going to know I'm happy in my retirement? What will that look like? And think about it. Talk about it with your spouse so that you know what you're working toward. Does it mean you're going to have your kids around you? Does it mean you're going to be serving the community more? What does happiness look like to you? Right? Fairly simple ideas. Purpose, passion, activities, accomplishment, team and togetherness, And last but not least, health and happiness. That's the path to a purposeful and healthy retirement. That's the Coach's Corner. We'll take a break, my friends. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, how how gullible is our brain? How many tricks can be played on one brain? If you've gone to a magic show, you might uh, feel like your brain really went through the ringer. Today, we are asked uh, Jay Olson to join us. Jay studies experimental psychology at McGill University, and his, uh, he's been researching using magic um, in one of his studies. And we wanted to pick his brain, find out really what's going on in our brain. How irrational of a mind do we have as human beings? Uh, We welcome you to the show. Jay Olson, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Talk about your study and your research. What are we finding out about our brains? Well, the most recent study that we did was trying to look at how much we can impact somebody's experience using things like perception and suggestion. So what happened in in the study is we told participants that we have a new kind of um, brain scanner that can both read your thoughts, so like know what you're thinking, Mm -hmm. and also influence your thoughts. Uh, And then um, the procedure was we would bring the participants into this machine, and then we would have them choose a number from 1 to 100. They would just choose a random number. And then we told them that the brain scanner would, would, would infer which number they're thinking of by looking at their brain activation patterns. Um, so we would slide <laughs> the, the participants out of the machine, and then a computer would print out a number from 1 to 100. And then I, w- I would ask the participant, what number did you choose? So, so, for example, just choose a number randomly from 1 to 100 right now. Yeah, 5. 5? Okay, so I would flip over that, that page, and it would say 5. So from the participant's point of view, they just thought of a number. They didn't even say it. They just thought of a number, and then somehow the machine printed out this. Hmm. And, and, and so we did this a few times with the participants, and then they really started believing that this machine could read their mind. Now, actually, this was all done through a magic trick. So the, the participants didn't know that I was a magician, and using a fairly simple magic trick, uh, I, I was just making the, the printer print out whichever number they chose. Okay. okay. So that was uh, that was the first part of the study. The second part of the study, we told them now this this machine is going to influence your choice. And then the printer started off by printing out a number from one to one hundred. Uh, I I didn't show the participants what the number was, but I told them, you're going to go into that machine and and using natural electromagnetic fluctuations, it's going to influence your decision. <laughs> um. So it'll make you choose that particular number. Okay. So, so the participant went back in, into the machine, 
and then came back out and I said, well, what number did you choose? So, for example, just name another number. Uh, 28. 28. So I would flip over the page and it would say 28. Ooh. So from their point of view, the machine printed out a number and then influenced them to choose it. But it was the same trick you used in the first one. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same trick. But nobody yeah. suspected that it was magic because we disguised all of this as science. Yeah, right. They walked. I bet you were wearing a jacket, like a white lab coat. Were you? Yeah. <laughs> well, not the white lab coat, but we were dressed like very professionally. Yeah. And, and and the machine was like one of these large um, machines. It was making all sorts of these of these brain scanner noises. So the whole thing seemed very credible. Mm-hmm. And then what we were looking at is what's the difference in people's minds when they're choosing these numbers. Um, so the difference in their head when they thought the machine was reading their mind versus when they thought the machine was influencing them. And we found a very large difference in people's feelings of control over their thoughts. So people, when they thought they were being influenced, they would say things like, oh, I could feel my head swelling, my head was getting very hot. <laughs> One person said that he, there was this voice that would drag him onto some particular number that, that he didn't want. So say that he wanted the number 14. He was trying to choose 14, but he felt his voice was, wow. was drawing him towards 28. Um, some people said that they would, like this number would pop into their head, like say the number five would pop into their head, and then they said that they couldn't change it. Like this number would just jump in there, and then they would try to think of another number, but it just wouldn't work. Um, somebody else said that her eyes were flickering back and forth as all these numbers were going by in her head, and then her eyes would stop on one number, and that would be the number that she has to choose. And so, what is that? It, that they're just they're they're attributing experiences to the study. Yes. So basically, making it up, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. so just with the suggestion that the machine is, is going to influence them, they could sort of talk themselves into actually experiencing all of uh, all of these different things, like this this reduced control over their thoughts, or, or or their head swelling, or like feeling feeling the numbers sort of drilling in, inside of their head. Yeah. So basically, we show that um, just through suggestion, you can take the average person and make them really believe and experience that they're that they're losing control of their mind. Wow, that is scary. I mean, I, I guess we've always kind of sensed that we could do that, right? Um, but I guess we could also we could also use their or work their mind or influence their mind to think think other thoughts, right? Like positive thing. Could, could I could I put thoughts into your mind that would make you be a better person, treat others better? Yeah, so that was um, something that we actually studied in a, in a, in a second study that um, we just completed now. Um, so we used the same kind of method, although we told them this time that this machine is 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 able to see their deep down true attitudes that they have. Um, so say that somebody thinks that sure that they're sort of a, a, an average helping person, they're kind of charitable sometimes. We told them that deep down, we can see how charitable they really are. So like how charitable their brain is, whether they're very altruistic, very charitable versus versus not very charitable. And so we had this whole deceptive setup once again. And then um, they filled out various questionnaires while, again, the machine would, um, would uh, try to guess their responses. And then so once we convinced them that we could see their, their like inner true attitudes, 
we told half of them randomly that their brain is actually a lot more charitable than they think they are. And then we told another half of them they're actually a lot less charitable, a lot less helping than they believe they were. And then <laughs> uh, wow. we had them fill out some more questionnaires. Yeah. And, and we found that, that the people who we told deep down they're more charitable, they would have a large increase in, in how charitable they, they actually saw themselves. So basically, if, if you convince somebody that deep down they are something, they'll start seeing themselves um, corresponding with that. Holy cow. So the people who we told are more charitable, they started saying, I'm more charitable. The people who we told were less, they started saying that, that they were less. Um, we found a couple in- interesting things, though. Yeah, what'd you find? We said, um, why do you think that you got this feedback that your um, that your brain is, in some cases, uh, more charitable, and for some people, that, that is less charitable? And then 80% of them would just jump onto some... Um, some kind of reason for this. So they would say, uh, they would say things like, "Oh, well, like, yeah, I think I am actually more charitable than I wrote. Like, I, I donate a lot of money, and I, I actually donate a lot of my college funds to a homeless person." And for the people who we said you're actually less charitable, we would say, um, "Why do you think this is?" And then they would jump on some, um, some kind of reason. They would say, "Well, I know actually, I don't really donate a lot. I, I pass homeless people on the street in Montreal quite a bit, and I." And I, uh, I almost never donate. Hmm. So people, they um, find they could it. Rationalize, yeah, yeah. They could rationalize this feedback that they got, although the feedback was completely random. So like they could sort of talk themselves into explaining why they got this uh, this feedback that they believed was like deep right. down. Well, is down. that? I mean, we we always we and I don't. I mean, some believe in it of like people that read your hand or read your cards and um, all of a sudden they're going through telling you things, you know, I, I sense or read your fortune, I guess some, I sense there's somebody in your life. And are, are these gentle little uh, suggestions then we will go in and make sense of? We, we are the ones that will turn it and interpret it into something meaningful for us. Yeah, definitely. So there's, uh, I, I, I guess, two aspects of this when these people are trying to um, read your future. Um, first, we know that when you're given sort of ambiguous or vague feedback, uh, I'm kind of what they got here, just saying generally you're more charitable than, than you think they are. Um, you'll, you'll often interpret this in like very, very meaningful ways, and, uh, and you'll think about examples of, of how this might happen in the future, and, and you'll feel that this is very personal for you. So they've done some studies where they gave people a personality reading that said things like, Sometimes you feel very confident, although sometimes when nobody's around, you're a little bit insecure, or hmm. or, or or some things like um, you're you're very close with some of your friends, but some of the friends that you're close with, uh, at times you don't like them very much. And <laughs> they gave these personality readings, which were actually all the same, to a bunch of people, and the majority of them said yes, like this really describes me. This is really who I am. Wow. So like they could. Uh, um, interpret these things as as very specific and relate to it and connect to it uh jay let's take a break we're going to come back more with jay olson on uh, the psychology of magic and uh really the irrational behavior sometimes of our own brains and minds stick with us more with jay olson when we come back this is the matt townsend show
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. The power of suggestion. It, uh, our mind will make it work one way or another, whether we suggest are suggested things that are positive or if we are suggested things that are negative, our brain will make the connection. That's some of the research Jay Olson is finding as he is studying experimental psychology at McGill University. He has a master's in science there and uh, is teaching us today about uh, the mind. It's such uh, – I guess it's irrational. Is that how you'd put it, Jay? It, our mind will make meaning in anything. Yes. That's basically what we're finding. Like um, we're very irrational and, uh, and also very suggestible. So in the right context, you can take the average person and make them experience and believe and behave sometimes in 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 unfairly extreme ways just through suggestion. I, I guess so it should work that if I suggest to my children that they're great at something, they might start believing they're great at it. Is there is there a downside to the suggestions or is it the you know, the person will eventually be all right either way? Well, normally with these um, suggestions, they vary quite a bit based on the uh, the context and uh, the person. But generally, um, we do find that if you give people um, small suggestions, then uh, then like they will change their attitudes and uh, and their behavior accordingly. So you see lots of this in in medicine and the placebo effect, for example. Um, so doctors who who prescribe some some kind of pill uh, and they say if you take this. You'll you'll feel better, and your uh, your flu will go away. Your fever will go down. Just that suggestion and the expectation that the people have that that this is going to improve them helps in, improve their symptoms. And so the placebo effect is um, one of the most robust examples that we have of how how little suggestions like this may have a, a large impact on uh, on your life. It's and again even uh, to. Because placebo could even change certain health issues, right? I mean, with a placebo effect, we actually might not need to medicate somebody simply because they believe they are being medicated, and that that could prove advantageous. Yeah, definitely. And uh, and, and there have been lots of of cases and, and studies showing that um, for some people, whether they take the the pill itself, like the active pill, or or a placebo effect, or a, a placebo pill rather. It'll it'll show basically the same improvement within them. So it seems like in in some cases a lot of the improvement that they're getting is actually from suggestion and expectation, and not actually from the the ingredients in the pill itself. Hmm. Where do you where do you see using this in the future? Where do you want to take the research, and how are ways that we as parents can be using it? Well, what we're generally trying to study is a suggestion without hypnosis necessarily. So there has been a, a lot of research on, on hypnosis and, and the suggestion that's being used there, but we're more interested in just the suggestion itself that, uh, that works on the, uh, on the average person. Hmm. Um, so what we're doing now is we're trying to see how this, uh, how this may affect health. So, for example, if you tell somebody that they're actually more healthy or or if their brain, for example, is, is actually more athletic than, than they believe they are, will this, uh, will this impact some, uh, some health behaviors that they have? So, for example, well, what kinds of foods, foods they eat or um, how often they run, for example. So we're looking at how, how these kinds of suggestions might 
uh, apply in, in practical, practical ways in people's own lives. Hmm. Which, which is so counterintuitive because the doctor, you'd think, would only state the facts. But what if you could find out health-wise you might help somebody's prognosis by stating also a little illusion or a suggestion um, that might impact health positively as well. Wow, interesting concept. Definitely. So we don't want to, I mean, obviously deceive a, right. a, a patient, but um, we do want to take a, a, a more practical look at this and say, um, say that the doctor can like lighten some things in, in, in one way or, or like overemphasize more positive things. How will these affect um, suggestion and expectation and, uh, and, and maybe make this placebo effect stronger so you can help the patient more? What, uh, as you, who are, you're in this and, and you're working in this, what have you figured out just about your day-to-day life? Has it changed at all? Like, so now when somebody is trying to sell you a magic trick or trying to, you know, get you to buy something, does, has it changed how you accept their suggestions? Yeah, one thing that's happened is uh, I, I become a lot more aware of, of all the suggestions that we that we sort of normally give throughout the day. Um, so one example that pops into, into my head is uh, I, I had hurt my knee during a, a workout, and then, and then I told my dad that I um, hurt my knee a bit. And then my dad said, oh, well, it might be hurting a bit now, but in the morning, that's when you're really going to feel it. That's when it'll be hurting more. <laughs> and then I, yeah. I, I was thinking, like, he's just, trying to, he's just trying to be honest, right? But that's not the kind of suggestion that you want to give someone. <laughs> you want to say something like, yeah, and, and, and make sure that you're very careful um, with it in, in the morning, and, and it'll recover in no time or something like yeah, that. Yeah, there you go. That's interesting, right? so yeah. And, and maybe we ought to all be looking more at our suggestions and rewriting them. Definitely, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so it might be about a knee, or, or as, as you were talking about before, it might be a, a note on somebody's door saying, don't be scared and sleeping in your <laughs> right. living room. But we'll um, learn how to give people more positive suggestions. That was a great, uh, great example. Well, Jay Olson, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work there at McGill University. And we suggest everybody go check out Jay's site, jayolson.org. Just a lot of uh, links to other research that he's been a part of. Wonderful stuff. Boy, we're all a little uh, we're all a little influenceable, and thank heavens in a way. We don't want to be so rigid; we can't relate. Well, if you uh, want to stick around for a really awesome, fun, exciting time, you're going to want to stick out. About, I don't know. We've only got 17 more minutes in the show. We'll be back. I'm suggesting it'll be incredible. Be here. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. In studio, Julie K. Nelson joins us. We call her the bomb mom, the child whisperer. Really? It's the bomb. It's the bomb. The blueberry muffin bringer. The blueberry muffin toter. So Julie's here to help us... um, figure out about, uh, as a parent, 
How do we set our kids up to succeed as they're going back to school? Yeah, so you're tired. You're just like so tired of kids around and you're ready to send them off. But are you send them off successfully to do well in the school arena? That's the key. the summer arena at home is completely opposite and almost counter uh-huh. counterintuitive. Their sleeping con- is off. Con- their schedule's yeah, off. Yeah, it's just contradictory to what they're going to be expected to school. So here's four ideas of parents, how to get your kids ready now. Get them ready cool. for school to do well and then keep it up when school starts. First one is teach them and, and talk out loud about cause and effect. Because we're going to be learning about pro-social skills in school. And if they're not learning it now and you don't verbalize it now, they're not going to learn, oh, if I do this, then this happens. And mm. school is all about pro-social behaviors, right? right? And so I, I used to teach school and I've raised five kids. So I know, you know, part of school is being academically smart, but yeah. the other part is getting along with others. And that's when you're, always what they say. She doesn't <laughs> play well with others. Yeah. And that's really an important part of actually doing intelligently well. Mm-hmm. And so if you are teaching your children cause and effect and pro-social behaviors, then it's going to reinforce that at school because the teacher's not going to be able to sit down with every single child one-on-one and say, hey, Johnny, do you know if you do this? They don't have time for that. So do it at home. So first of all, say things like how their actions might affect others at home. So you could say, you know, if you let Hannah use your crayons, she'll probably let you use her markers. And then you can both have different types of, hmm. of writing. So you speak out loud the things that would benefit them in social behaviors instead of just kind of let them just figure it out and then end up fighting and, and then throwing markers at each other because they're not sharing. So you, you suggest what would happen if, and then plant those ideas in their head. So when they're in school, they're like, oh, oh yeah, I remember if I share then, this will happen to me to benefit me, cause and effect. So you're kind of thinking, project this down the road a mm-hmm. bit. Let them anticipate situations and scenarios. So watch for it at home, parents, because you're the first, your child's first and best teacher. And so the teachers don't have at school a lot of time and resources to one-on-one with your child. So do it so that at school they they do these behaviors on their own better. And they don't have to wait and then find lots of negative mm-hmm. um, outcomes because they are don't play well. Another idea would be like if you said to your child, if you don't hang up your backpack each day, you'll probably forget where it's at and then you'll have to go to school without it. And this is kind of like the cause and effect, you know, the, the consequences. So teach the cause and effect consequences then follow through with these things and teach them empathy you know how does it feel when you help someone else mm-hmm. these are all pro-social behaviors so talk out loud say these things that are teaching moments now and throughout the school year another thing is uh, I hate to say this but we all know str- like you said before Matt summer is loosey-goosey oh. I mean bedtime ah. what's that yeah. What's be- meal times? Regular what? We sit down together, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, we just grab and go during the summertime. So it's time to start making those schedules of what we do to make life happen. And it has to happen early on um, before school even starts to get them regulated. So that there's not like a great big shock that we have to go to bed at a certain time. Mm-hmm. And then we're starting planning out, you know. Because it takes time to just get adjusted and your brain to get up to speed. Yeah, you can't just make up sleep in a week. Right. So, you know, you got to make sure it's not a rude awakening when they go back to a highly structured classroom. Because yeah. I'll tell you, this classroom is opposite to what we do in the summertime. Right, right. So have a schedule. Um, ha- have them daily chores. If they're not doing like daily chores during the summertime, which they should be still. You bet, you bet. Oftentimes we neglect that as well. But daily chores, get them back into, you know, who's helping with unloading the dishwasher, you know, and make sure they're doing their bedroom, practice. Whatever it is that you have them do, make sure there's a consistent schedule that they're following it. Give them support, um, and then model these things. If they're not good at it now, parents, if you if you suck at this, you don't do good. Then you know, getting consistent scheduling and chores. Then say this is how we clean a bathroom, mm-hmm. and then 
model it for them, show them how to do it, take pictures of what a clean sink looks like, you know, <laughs> whatever it takes. But, this is a clean sink. <laughs> and this is the steps to do it. Yeah. And so scaffold these things so that they know how to follow a project from beginning to end because cleaning a bathroom beginning to end is just like going to school and following a project from beginning right. to end. And there's a lot of projects that happen at school. Some people, though – it sounds like they, they think it's too hard to teach that because it's just easier to clean the bathroom. Yeah, themselves. But that's, I guess, the hard role of parenting is do the hard thing, let the kids learn how to do it. Like every time I have my kids do something that they haven't ever done before, my wife looks at me like I've, like I've just thrown them to the devil. <laughs> um, like you're going to let them do that? Well, sure. I mean, they're they're big. Do you kids. realize what's going to happen? Our they house can, will explode. They can do this, <laughs> and and it actually would give them an empowerment, you know, view of themselves. But also, there's tough stuff you can do. Yeah, and you know, I think especially moms, maybe dads too. But since moms, their domain is the home, they start to implode when their children don't do things exactly right. Parents, especially moms, let go. Don't let your OCD take over. Yeah. If your children, if you say, okay, I want you to fold the laundry, and it's not perfectly folded, and the towels are not absolutely straight and they put it in, you know, it's okay. Let go. Let them know that they're doing a great job and they're working towards achievement, but they're not quite there yet. But they can't, you have to expect age-appropriate things and they can't always be to your level of momhood Mm -hmm. because you're an an adult. And so don't make the chores so awful that they hate it. Celebrate what they can do and look over what you can. And then as they get older, expect a little higher level of performance. But Gosh, you know, just let them have a schedule. Let them um, have some discipline of we do this work before play and don't make it so miserable that everybody hates doing it. But just the fact that they're just doing something that's consistent each day, yeah. like folding the laundry or making their bed. Their bed may not be perfect, but they made it. It's theirs and it's they'll get to sleep in it tonight. They'll sleep in it and they'll make it, they'll make it messy again. And then as they get older, we can up the level, yeah. you know, raise the bar of, of making their beds, but just celebrate the, 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 the effort right now. And then and eventually you'll have them making your bed, <laughs> which is even better. <laughs> I hope. I hope. So just That's make true. sure that they do those chores. They have a schedule. We sit down and we have some meals, consistent meals throughout the, the week. And it may not be perfect, but just get it done so that they have a routine. That's the important thing is routine. Um, third, teaching that mistakes is a good thing. Because yeah. I'll tell you what, in school, it's all about making mistakes and the learning process. It's fine to make a mistake. No one ever gets, you know, the, the problem right the first time. Right. You know, I mean, the whole worksheet. We That's what pencils have erasers for. Mm-hmm. School's about learning how to fail and then how to figure out how I failed on that math problem and then figure it out correctly. Or you have a sloppy copy for your, you know, paper. And then you, you know, do another edit, you know. So school's all about the process of learning. But at home, we expect them to get it right the first time every time. Yeah. And why didn't you do this? And we yell at them, you know, you didn't get this done and it's not done right and you didn't get your shoes on the right feet. And we don't realize that there's a process of learning at home as well. Mm -hmm. So let them make mistakes. My son was cleaning the bathroom yesterday. What? He was, yeah. He what? He cleaned the bathroom. How old is he? And he's 14. What? And you'd think at 14 he'd get it right. I've gone through the steps and he was so proud. He's like, I got it done, mom. I'm like, okay, let's go up and let's have a look at it, you know? (laughs) I'm just in my head thinking, it's not going to be good. What's he going to have? And, yeah. and we talked earlier about letting them be, you know, do the best they can. And I've done that throughout the years, you know, letting them at the whatever level of performance they can do and then celebrate that. And so I went up there and said, now, you know what? This looks great. This, you know, look at these counters and look at this. And then I said, now look more at, tell me how you did the bathtub. And, you know, the, the fact is, is that it's a, a part of learning. Oh, I missed that spot. Oh, Yeah. 
And it's it's not that. What's wrong with you?、Mm. How, how, how can't you? Don't you have two pairs? A pair、yeah. of eyes? Can't you? You know, we just get so mad at them because they didn't do it the way they're supposed to. Right. But at home, it's a learning process of how we、um, progress towards the next level of achievement. And along the way, there's going to be mistakes. They may break something, and we don't come unglued because、mm-hmm. they break something or they missed their soccer practice because they forgot about it. It's a process. Okay, let's see. You forgot about your soccer practice. What can you do? Not me as a parent. What can you do next time so you'll remember?、Mm-hmm. And how can、It's、I、great. help that? Because they're going to make mistakes, and we don't become unglued. Because what that does is, if we become unglued and start yelling at them for the mistakes they make, they're never going to learn the lesson. Yeah. Because they're too busy fighting and defending themselves from、right. the scary parent. Then, then it, if it's not safe to fail, then it might not be safe to risk and try.、Mm-hmm. So we just basically are demanding success, but at a mediocre level. Yeah, and we also are demanding perfectionism, which、yeah. is really impossible, and, and it causes anxiety in kids that they have to be perfect、mm. every time. So let them make mistakes. Don't become unglued parents. Use it as a teaching process of, hey, you know what? I said to Daniel, hey, you got ninety five percent of the bathroom. Good. I mean that it's great. Nailed it. Nailed it. Five percent. Let's work、great. on it. Take you five minutes to figure that out. So ninety five percent of it, you got it done, buddy. Right. And so help them to learn how to look at mistakes in a positive way. It's great. Okay, last one, and everyone start cringing.、Oh, I know.、Oh, I、boy. know. Oh boy!、The、parents, I, I just,、oh. it's so counteractive what we have in our hands. But technology is really counteractive to what's going on in the classroom. Teachers are not technology. They're not going to entertain, and they don't do these thirty-second, you know,、um, sound bites. Right. So take the technology out of their hands and limit it, parents. And they probably had free reign all summer. But it's time to say, hey, you know what? We need to start pulling back on technology and saying, how? What is a reasonable amount of time that you should be on your iPad or on the computer or whatever it might be on your phone? If they've got phones, you know, what's a reasonable amount of time? Because the brain activity that's going on, that's being entertained by the by the phone or the iPad or the game they're playing, is going to really、um, hinder their ability to pay attention and have focus. On a teacher who just sits there、oh, and、right. just talks and is、right. not entertaining at school, and their mind's going to drift,、mm. and they're going to actually go through some major withdrawal. Yeah, technology does program your brain. <laughs> they're going to look like a bunch di- of drug addicts <laughs> yeah, at recess. They are, <laughs> and their hands are going to start shaking, and it's going to be ugly.、Yeah. So, really, start to wean them off their technology. I know this is a terrible topic because it's it、That's、looks、so、it、important. looks like taking cocaine from an addict. It really、mm-hmm. does in many cases. They get that bling. Yeah. Bling, bling, and it, and it about really, every thirty seconds,、them. and it's very destructive because they can't follow through a thought. Same symptoms as ADD. Yeah, because、ADHD. it's teaching, it's rewiring their brain to have that very、uh, short attention span. I believe that. And like when my kids are sitting with me and they get the bling, and they look down and they're going to grab their phone, like you know what. That can wait. You bling that again, <laughs> Daddy's going to crush you.、That's、you don't have to look、it. at your phone every time there's a notification.、Yeah. It's very hard because it it's almost this、um, cause and effect, like the,、oh. the the Pavlovian, Pavlovian, Pavlovian、yeah. thing with the dog.、Right. You know, they start to salivate. Let's say you have spoiled, not spoiled. Let's say you've you've done something for your children. That, like, let's say you have six kids. Let's、right. say you just kill yourself right there. Hypothetically, let's、okay. say you have six. Okay. And the first couple, you did something for them. You know, maybe I don't know, you, whatever. You bought them a car, or you let them go to a dance, whatever.、Um, at a certain age, and then you find out, you know, it's probably better that we don't do that. And you learn as a parent. Do you switch the deal and then treat and then parent effectively, and do what you know is just healthy, or am I now under obligation because I've set a precedence? 
I, I feel I'm getting vibes from you that this is like we're using a personal example here. Yeah. yeah this yeah. is well, this is I have a friend. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Who has? Let me give you an example. My parents, uh, my oldest daughter was extremely responsible and the perfect child, and I was not. Yeah. And I had this, I did this thing called I'd go out with my friends and we'd hang out and we'd go TPing. I don't know if you know about that, but that was our fun Uh back in the day. Toilet papering. Yes, for those not in in the the trees. Uh And that, you know, one o'clock in the morning, I was out, you know, doing crazy stuff. Yeah. And we'd also go to midnight movies. That was the big (gasps) deal. And so. I'd come home wasted the next morning. I mean, not wasted like no, as far as alcohol, but you were like not I was, I was no no good the next morning because yeah. I was out playing, you, you know, out, doing yeah. you know movies you and were stuff. At midnight playing yeah. a gidget. Yes, uh, yeah, uh huh. The Brady Punch, yeah, yeah, and doing and throwing toilet paper in people's trees. Yeah, and my parents thought I was no good the next day, and it was just not a healthy thing for me to be out doing stuff with kids at that time of night. Right. So they they pulled me in and said, you know what, um. We have allowed this to happen, but we can see that it's not a good thing for your um, emotional, social health, physical health. Yeah, and um, we're now seeing the the, ben- the 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 what's going on here, and so we want to um, now create this safe boundary that we didn't do before. And we're sorry we didn't see this earlier, but as parents, it's a learning process, and um, we are now. Um, realizing that this was not a good thing. Mm. So no more midnight movies. Well, I'll quest- oh, I pouted. I stamped yeah. my feet, you know. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, you yeah. know. And uh, no, nothing past midnight. If you want to go TP someone's house, get it done by, by midnight. So midnight's the time. Really? You've got to be in bed. Yeah. What did Which is parents- really hard to do because people are still up and you, yeah. can, you, you can't sneak around. At- what did your parents say about that big eagle tattoo on your back? <laughs> And you got to get rid of the eagle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't have that. But okay. they, the midnight thing really Just cramped checking. my style and they had to like had pull to back. It. They had to change you, back. Like what you're saying. You have to learn. And I was like, oh, but you know, it's something I've had the freedom mm-hmm. and it was really restricting me. It was really cramping my style. I was really mad at them for a while. Um, but the, the fact they do it lovingly and say, you know, and they even you could even say, you know, for the older children, this wasn't an issue. Right. Or we didn't know better, and we're learning. It's a learning process. Just like you learn, we make mistakes. We're learning, we're learning. and it would be it would be stupid of us to keep making the same mistakes. Yeah, you wouldn't want us to keep making mistakes. No. And so, you know, we're now we're we're doing something better, and we're making uh, we're becoming a better parent. And yeah. and we change for each child too. We have to adjust for each child. I used to say, well, we we actually used to spank the first two. <laughs> And we don't spank them anymore. Yeah. So you're being blessed by these changes. Exactly. Too. I spanked my first one and then I stopped. I realized yeah. that was not working. That's not working. So, you know, we, we were, yeah. it's, a, it's a work in progress. You've got to learn. And kids are going to pout. They're going to stamp their feet. They're probably going to slam doors and be right. mad at you. But you know what? You just lovingly tell them, I'm learning. So help me to learn. And, 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 and I want to do this for your benefit. That's great. Yeah. And, and, and so, spend some time getting them ready to go to school. But. Don't wait till the night before. Exactly. All these four things. Try them. Start doing them now. Get a routine. Uh, start limiting the technology. You know, help help them to learn through their mistakes and teach them pro-social behaviors. There you go. Mm-hmm. That's all you need to know right there. From the queen herself, Julie K. Nelson, the, the bomb mom, go to her website, a spoonfulofparenting.com. Wonderful resources there. You can read all of her blogs and uh, listen to all of her past interviews as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
You know, uh, I get to work with couples, and um, a lot of times that's what I hear. I hear a lot of these very issues that Dr. Malkin was talking about. You know, people that won't back down, people that won't apologize. And when you think about it, it really is about their ability to feel secure that you'll accept them. And so they end up fighting for, they end up fighting uh, to be right because if they're wrong, you, they're afraid you'll reject them. And this attachment stuff we talk about on the show a lot, it seems like, because it really is becoming one of the great dividers in our relationships and our ability to reach and connect to other people. If I'm not securely attached, then I will tend to become a detached person. I'll tend to pull away from you. I don't need you, which would make some of those other, uh, what Dr. Malkin was calling the three E's, much easier for me to do, to exploit you, to be entitled, and to have my empathy towards you impaired. If, if I was raised in a home where you know my parents divorced and left me and, and I wasn't taken care of and cared for to the degree I wanted to be or needed to be, to be healthy, um, I guess you could just, I don't know, be, you know, f- hate me and frustrated by me and, and think I'm a jerk. But if that happened when I'm a kid, it's going to make me somebody that doesn't re- relate and connect and I'm not going to be real with people. It doesn't mean I couldn't lead a company. I can still lead a company. It's just I don't necessarily need people because it's not about the people. It's about me. The people don't matter to me. It's also possible that these people could become president of the United States. And you're the one that is in the voter booth, right? You're the one that stands there and marks, yes, this is going to be my leader. Yes, this is the one that's going to be my governor, my politician. So let's go through, again, the do's and the don'ts from Dr. Craig Malkin's um, open letter to U.S. voters. Number one, do applaud careful reflection. Be open to a presidential candidate that is reflective and um, somebody that is, that is open to learning and is willing to listen and hear new things. So many of these candidates go out on their listening tour. And they might be trying to impress you to believe that they're going to listen. But you can tell if people are listening because they're open. They're, they're actually trying to be influenced by what someone else is saying. I can still think you're absolutely wrong politically. I can still have a complete uh, belief in my heart that what you're saying or doing is wrong, but I can still be open and hear what you're saying. And what what's powerful about that is instead of me having to beat you down and embarrass you and hurt you and harm you, I could just let your ideas come out and your ideas will either sink you or elevate you. Think about it. In a great debate, it's the ideas that should win, not the manipulation of the debater. It's the ideas should be able to, to uh, move to the top. So do, uh, do applaud a leader that's careful and reflective. Don't applaud insults. If your politician or your candidate is insulting everybody, don't applaud that. That is a sign of emotional abuse. You wouldn't take it on the playground, so don't take it in Washington. 
do applaud when they show feelings and their willingness to be emotionally moved by something. I mean, can you imagine what some of these candidates or the president would have to do going into Walter Reed Hospital in uh, D.C. and trying to deal and connect with people that have just been injured in war? That should move you. Writing a letter every day, which I think is what President Obama does to these people that write into him, he, he answers letters every day. Handwritten letters to people because he wants to be able to stay connected on that level. So don't applaud insults. Do applaud feelings. We want our president to be a feeler. Well, yeah, but he's going to blow up the world. You don't want the man that's going to blow up the world that has the nuclear weapons to be a feeler. Sure you do. You do. He's not going to reactively go grab the, you know, the magic suitcase and blow up the world. He is going to or she is going to have to feel, is this the right decision? Uh, The fourth rule he gives us, don't applaud manipulation. People that are impaired with, with a lack of empathy or people that feel entitled to be the next president or people that are used to exploiting others for their benefit and their gain, they will manipulate you. So if you see manipulation going on, I'd avoid it. I would not elect that person. Do applaud collaborative behavior. What I would love you to go think about is when you think of all of the candidates, which of those candidates do you see has the ability to actually be collaborative with the other party? Who has done it? Who talks about doing it right now? Very few, if any, of the candidates right now are collaborative. Where, where do you see it happening? Uh, don't applaud black and white thinking we talked about. Watch out when they're too black and white. And you see it on every discussion that goes on. If you're too black and white and most of the world ends up being gray, again, it doesn't mean you can't have your own value system. You should. You do need to have your own value system. But part of your value system should be able to listen and understand and hear what others are saying, even if you don't agree with it. That's a little bit of the gray area. And if most of the world is gray, you're going to have to be more than just black or white. Yes or no, up or down, good or bad. Uh, Number seven, do applaud apologies. I would go look and ask how many uh, sincere apologies have you heard from candidates? And if any candidate that can't sincerely apologize, I'd turn the other way. Don't applaud evasiveness. Anybody that's incredibly vague in their answers or glib or shallow, be careful, especially, by the way, if they're highly extroverted. A really extroverted, strong, social person can be highly evasive. All you need to do is go watch one press hearing with the the press secretary of the president of the United States, and it doesn't matter what president it is, you see a ton of evasiveness. They just are dancing and shucking and jiving the entire time. So be careful of evasiveness. And the last rule about dealing with uh, a narcissist, especially in our political world, is do applaud curiosity. Who's asking the questions? Who wants to know? Who's interested? Which of your candidates are most interested in getting in there and learning and figuring out what's going on? Who's doing it right now? Questions aren't bad, right? Just the beginning of getting us somewhere. So, folks, we've got to take it seriously. 
We've got to be the change. And it's enough. You can just be as mad as you want at all these candidates. But in reality, you're the voter. I'd be, I actually get more frustrated with, the, with my fellow voters than I do the candidates. How do we keep promoting certain people? And how do we not see the values of other people? Interesting stuff. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Isn't it interesting that we now, in today's day and age, we notice more and more people um, suffering from anxiety. We, we're trying to figure out why that is. There's probably a lot of reasons with technology, with expectations. We've done a lot of parenting changes over the years where we try to absorb all potential ills from our children. Um, So they're basically, you know, the ideal would be they grow up in a world that I guess is so germ-free and clean and perfect that there is no stress in life. And yet maybe that lack of stress is causing stress. Um, do you feel like, though, that you're great at understanding and recognizing the emotion of your children? Do you have the ability to handle their emotional differences? And and by the way, remember that some emotional outbursts are just normal, right? Most of them are just normal. It's, uh, you know, there's the... There's the differences in ages and developmental stages and the ability that some people, you know, at certain ages, children don't have the ability to manage certain emotions yet. They don't have the clarity to to just, you know, think their way through it and to cognitively change what they're feeling. So we may not want to push that on a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old. But sometimes what you can do is just help recognize um, that, that these pressures in life exist. That they're there. And uh, not only are they there, but they're actually pretty valuable. It's it's valuable for these kids to recognize what they're feeling. They're frustrated. And so one of the most valuable tools I think we can use when – and again, this takes a little patience. And if you're not in a position where you want to be patient enough to let your kids share and go through their process, their emotion, you know, you've got stuff to do. Yeah, yeah I don't care how you feel about the lawn. Just mow it. <laughs> We may not care, but if you don't care, they know it, right? And so there's a time where we should recognize the emotion. And it's one of the, it's one of the I think, most powerful skills I've learned as a parent is um, when I see they're angry, recognize it. And don't just, don't just notice it and react to their anger and their frustration, but hold it up for them to see. You are frustrated that you have to go mow the lawn. You're frustrated. I can see that. Tell me about it. And then you invite them to share about their emotion. If I can recognize my child is happy, then that tells my child I pay attention to him or her. If I can recognize that they're sad, that tells my child I pay attention to you. And I care enough to want to know why. Why are you happy? Why are you sad? But I also show them that they're always communicating to me about their emotion. Part of emotional intelligence is the ability to, you know, recognize the emotion of others, but also the ability to lower those emotions. We all know what we need to do if we want to tick someone off, right? We can, everyone listening can think of 10 things you could do today to go make somebody incredibly angry at you. Think about it. All you'd have to do is, you know, when your wife says, oh, what a day. She's expressing emotion, right? Can you, can you think right now of one thing you could say, that would absolutely just make her frustrated with you. Oh, you think you had a tough day. 
Yeah, it sounds like it was really hard. What, just stay home all day? Hmm. See where that's going? That ain't going to be pretty. So instead, what if we could recognize the emotion? You seem tired. You seem exhausted. I'm hearing. I'm picking up. I'm, it sounds like you had a hard day. What's going on? And invite them to share the emotion. The reason we want them to share the emotion is because then I can get more information about what they're feeling, right? Instead of me having to make it up, I can get them to share their emotion. And by the way, by sharing their emotion, it also helps to lower their emotion. By them, by me recognizing it and asking them to share it and explore it with me, they then start to lower their own emotion. You want to help people, uh, you know, help your children when they're in the middle of a tantrum, recognize the emotion and see if you can't get them to share the story behind the tantrum. You don't have to agree with the story, but you can hear it. You can understand it. You can start to make sense of it. And that will just do nothing for you but give you more information. One of my favorite quotes about this uh, about this emotional management process is, um, in order to influence someone, you must first be influenced by them. And um, in order to be influenced, I have to listen to them, right? Uh, another great quote is by a guy named Joe Thomas that says, you can't meet a need that you don't understand – And just because I understand your need doesn't mean I need to meet it. But we need to be willing to show our kids, our family, the people we love, that I can see you have a need and I'm I'm willing to help you meet it. But I want to know what's going on first. And I may not meet your need. Once I learn what's going on, I may actually come back with a completely different approach that you may not like. But I'll know better how to handle it, better what to say. So... We just need to recognize that emotions exist. Hold those emotions up and put a label on it for them and let them then explain the label. And by doing this, you put a little bit more responsibility back on them to own their emotion, that their emotions have names and that they can share what's going on with their emotion. That's so much better than just ignoring it, than telling the child to be quiet, than not ever addressing an emotion. Think about it. most of your most difficult issues you'll ever have in life surrounded, are surrounded by emotion. And if you've never been able to feel safe in your emotion, boy, that's a scary, that's a scary life. How do you proceed forward in a life that you know you're not emotionally ready to take care of? The only way to get through that would be to numb. And then the numbing would come down to drugs or alcohol or meds or opioids or anything else to help you get through it, including just escaping in your technology. So it is something, folks, that every one of us can do a little bit better of. The number one key is recognize the emotion to the person. I can see you're frustrated. I can see you're sad. Make sure when you recognize the emotion, you're not real judgmental. I wouldn't even ask it as a question. I'd state it. You seem bummed. You seem down. Then you can say, what's up? Explain. You seem happy. Tell me about your day. So um, it's just, it's basic, right? It's basic, but it's hard. It's, It's hard, basic. Let's just try. Let's just all try a little bit better to recognize the people that are hurting and actually say something in a loving way. If your spirit and your tone is right and you show you just want to understand and help, That'll go a very long way to help people allow to allow people to share their emotions. Anyway, just my opinion. 
I'm your coach, your guide on the side. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Brings back such memories. Welcome back, folks. You know, traumatic brain injuries, also known as TBI and concussions, are a major cause of death and disability in the United States and contribute to about 30% of all injury deaths. With Will Smith's starring role as the Nigerian forensic pathologist in the movie Concussion, it's brought nationwide attention to the negative effects of TBI. But what can we do to prevent these types of injuries? Here to speak with us today is Dr. David Smith, president and CEO of Traumatic Brain Injuries. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Matt. Good to talk to you today. This, uh, boy, concussions have been in the news quite a bit uh, for about the last couple of years, at least. Um, I know they've been part of your life for a long time. What What is there to learn from nature? Uh, woodpeckers, for example, uh, I've read some of your work about um, bringing up, there's much to learn how animals you know, bighorn sheep, ram heads, woodpeckers are banging their head all day long. How come they can do it, but our NFL football players and our military can't? Well, that's exactly right. Um, I was actually poised with the question about 10 years ago, kind of off the cuff and jokingly. I was at a conference at the Army Research Lab, and at the end of my presentation on an unrelated topic, Somebody jokingly thought that the presentation was clever, and why don't clever people ever figure out brain injury, was what the military had asked. And, of course, one of the guys in the front row said, I think if somebody could figure out how a woodpecker can smack its head against a tree and fly away without a headache, we'd have the whole problem solved. Yeah. Well, everybody cracked up laughing except me. I love those types of conundrums, and I ended up uh, not having anyone paying me as a consultant, but uh, just basically see if I could figure out if God and nature had figured this out already. So I uh, immersed myself into all of the highly G-force tolerant animals, and the woodpecker being the the most obvious one, Um, and about nine months later came up with how how that must be happening and coined it slosh theory. Slosh theory. Um, Okay, so first of all, too, what are some other G-force you know, uh, surviving animals, woodpeckers, bighorn sheep, bighorn sheep. Right. Woodpeckers, uh, they smack their heads against trees 12,000 times a day, 80 million times in their lifespan. And they, they literally have a G force of 1200 G's where you and I might get a concussion, one impact at 50 G's. You're right. Head ramming sheep are around 500 G's. But then there's all of the different predator birds. So there's owls, there's uh, even bats, which, of course, are a mammal, not a bird. You know, they're pulling 20 and 25 Gs at a time. And at least in a centrifuge in the military, most of us pass out when we're going and pulling 9 Gs in a centrifuge. So it was obvious to me that the answer was sitting in front of us and that there was an answer. For someone such as myself, who's always been tasked to try to, uh, you know, figure complex situations out, uh, you never really know if you're going to have an answer. You're going to try. Mm. But in this particular situation, you can just look at nature and know that there was an answer and that, that mankind had obviously missed 
the mark on this one. Is it, and I guess explain the physiology of it. The brain is in a skull and it's not meant to stop quickly and or I guess even start quickly, right? It's not well, meant correct. to stop or start because it'll, it'll bruise, it'll bang against the interior of the, of the skull. Well, is that right. how it works? And the, the te- yeah, the, the, the whole topic is called uh, hydrodynamics. And actually, NASA was the one to first figure this out way back in the 1960s. They were having catastrophic effects of sending rocket ships into outer space because the liquid fuel containers would dissipate and then the fuel level would decrease and all the energies could actually be absorbed from the rocket engines and they would explode. Mm. So a sloshing fluid uh, moving around inside of a moving container was deemed a slosh. All, All I did was take somebody else's brilliance and throw it over here into mankind. We have moving containers called skulls, and we're filled with mostly liquid up there. It's venous and arterial blood, but as well as CSF, and then brain. Hmm. So it may be that the brain's the innocent bystander, and really the problem is is the fluid-filled aspect of the brain. The slosh theory. Um, So then... Apparently, these other animals, these birds, they they also have, I guess, they have more cushioning in because they have they have less slosh. Is that the theory? Well, in a woodpecker's case, it does. It actually has a decreased amount of intracranial space. But what most of these guys have is what I kind of connected the dots and found the thread. They all had ways of mitigating or altering the fluid volume inside their brain. Mm. And it turns out that as I started looking into woodpeckers, they they called them actually uh, cavity-nesting birds. And I had no idea what a cavity-nesting bird was. And I started actually looking into that, and every single one on the list were these highly G-force tolerant predator birds. And I thought, oh, my God, that that sounds odd. And Mm started looking into it further and started to realize that, uh, you know, in a cavity inside of a woodpecker nest, there's huge levels of carbon dioxide, nearly 300 times as much carbon dioxide inside of a woodpecker cavity. And believe it or not, someone's out there measuring these things. (laughs) All I did was uncover what other people had done and then connect those dots again. But then as you start looking ahead, ramming sheep, you know, the sheep have these massive horn cores underneath their skull and they're attached to their respiratory tree, and they're attached to their horns. And inside those horn cords are huge, huge levels of CO2. Well, CO2 turns out to be the strongest determinant of how much fluid pressure and volume goes up into the brain space. So it suddenly clicked on me, Mm. who's an internist who looks into these types of physiological things. You know, I think that's what enabled me to suddenly realize, well, wait a minute, CO2 is not the the horrible, horrific thing that society has come to believe, it's critical for actual monitoring and maintaining of volume and pressure in the brain. So that's where it first clicked. And then I talked to one of the carbon dioxide gods of the world up in Toronto, and he pointed out that another mechanism uh, sounds like Quinkenstadt maneuver, because I had also looked into the neck structure of the woodpecker and there's this wild apparatus that actually compresses its jugular vein. And no one had ever been able to figure out why that woodpecker's tongue looks like this. It's called the omohyoid apparatus. And it actually starts on the top of its beak, goes up over the top of its skull, and then comes back around Whoa. the neck yeah. and compresses. It's a bizarre-looking animal when you actually take the skin off and look at it. 
And uh, ultimately, this compression is very similar to what had been studied way back in the early 1900s by Dr. Quinkenstadt. So it became clear to us that since that was a safe maneuver, that we might be able to actually backfill the cranial space with a tiny amount of excess blood, blood that occurs every time you cough or sneeze or every time you raise your arms or even if you just lie down, that's how much fluid and blood moves back up into the brain space. It's about three to four cc's of fluid. And gentle constriction um, enables this backfilling um, into the brain space, and then this thing called the compensatory reserve volume, it's a big word, it just means all the excess room is taken up, and it's like bubble wrap, and it literally prevents the brain from moving around, and just like you can walk away from a car accident when your airbags go off and, you know, your your seatbelts are firing, you can also walk away from a, a concussive type event where your head hits another football player or a blast wave comes across you in the same manner the forces go through you instead of being absorbed by you wow so you know animals they've evolved these things are you, are you suggesting that we can actually train uh athletes or uh, to create more flow into their brain no it's even it's even cooler than that every single vertebrate on the planet earth all of us Every animal with a spine has an omohyoid and digastric muscle. And the only known action of the omohyoid muscle is what I just described. Wow. Prior to our work, we knew of no action of the omohyoid muscle. Everybody thought it was just a vestige of evolution and that it was extinguishing. But wait a minute. If that was true, why does every single creature <laughs> still have one? And so it became clear to me that somebody was missing the true f- physiological function of this this muscular device, and all we decided, and, and, I, and what brought us and my work to, to the forefront, was we could facilitate this muscle. So we may have evolved away from, from needing it and using it uh, for the last thousand years. I, I, I guess nature didn't really think that we needed to bang into trees. Right. So we, we really haven't utilized it so much until football and wars started coming into place, and that's when, in fact, we kind of could use that same physiological mechanism. We we started with rats, and we were able to actually put little tiny rat collars on these uh, <laughs> rats and, and then impart a, a study maneuver called the Marmorale Protocol. Dr. Bales was one of the two characters in the movie Concussion, and I actually saw him presenting to Congress um, on behalf of the NFL Players Association, what the, the dilemma of concussion and chronic traumatic encephalopathy was. And I jokingly said to the person next to me that, oh, you know, I think, I think Dr. Bales needs to meet me. And I woke <laughs> up the next morning and I kind of repeated that mantra, wait a minute, he needs to I shouldn't me. be joking. I think he really needs to meet me. And I ended up picking up the phone that morning, and you wouldn't believe the conversation trying to get through his secretary oh, when I, I told the chief of neurosurgery, uh, or told the secretary that the chief of neurosurgery had to come to the phone and talk to a guy about woodpeckers. <laughs> but she let me through on the phone, and Dr. Bales ultimately was, uh, you know, had the insight, just as he did with Bennett Amalu in the movie, he had the insight to call me a quack and call me crazy, but he said my concepts and ideas were plausible. He put me in the in front of multiple different scientific minds in his department, and ultimately they uh, they did this massive study with these rats. 
he told me the night before that, uh, you know, science has never been able to block even 1% of concussion. Helmets have never blocked 1% mm. of concussion. So he said, if we block 2 or 3%, you know, he will open every door on the planet Earth for me. Well, we blocked 83% of concussive damage. By wearing by the... By his study. By wearing the collars. Wearing, the, the mice, the rats wearing the collars. That's right. Unbelievable. So he did, uh, he did open every door on the planet. He introduced me to a company called Q30 Labs, who invested heavily into creating this device for human use. We went off and have done about 25 to 27 different safety studies. Uh, I then uh, hitched my wagon to a guy named uh, Dr. Gregory Meyer. He's the head of human research lab at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. This is one of the largest institutions in the world for studying humans. We ended up putting collars made for humans um, after five years of development and fail-safing the best we could onto humans and started studying them in Cincinnati, Ohio at St. Xavier High School and Moeller High Schools. In the hockey field, we started and had a dramatic reduction in brain injury measured by tensor MRIs. And then the, this landmark article was released in January of this last year, followed immediately thereafter by even a larger study in football, again showing rather drastic and dramatic changes and alterations or improvements in the amount of damage that was seen. Lessons from the woodpecker. Dr. David Smith, let's take a break. We'll come back. I want to continue and find out uh, what the future looks like then with traumatic traumatic brain injuries and some of this new technology. This uh, Just a simple collar changing possibly concussions overall. Stick with us, folks. Helping you see the good in the world and uh, see the people making it happen. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Concussions, we talk about them on the show. Uh, the fear of our children playing Little League sports, soccer, t- a lot of concussions in soccer with uh, these kids all trying to, you know, push their heads toward the sky to head a ball into the goal. And then they bang heads. Concussion, football, concussion, lacrosse, concussion, uh, falling off your bike, concussion. You name it, skiing, concussion. Everyone's wearing helmets, and yet it's not decreasing the amount of concussions we're having necessarily because it just doesn't work that way. Joining us is Dr. David Smith, who has uh, been learning from the woodpecker, from uh, bighorn sheep, also from bird predator birds, about how come all of these animals can pull all of these G's, banging heads, banging their head eight million times as a woodpecker does, and not get a concussion? Well, apparently it's about, uh, I guess, Dr. Uh, Smith, it's about fluid management then, right? We These animals and birds tend to have more fluid protecting the brain than the average human, I guess. Well, they've learned to contain that fluid. And, and again, the, the, the cranium is not uh, half full, et cetera, right. but there's space and things can't actually expand and contract. There's 
pressure-sensitive membranes, if you will, that can basically fill up and, like bubble wrap, contain the brain space. And that's what these creatures have figured out how to modulate. And God gave us that same mechanism. It's just we've not learned to utilize it. Yeah. So it's, it's one of these things that even just a yawn, when you raise your arms up over your head, it actually compresses your jugular and digastric muscles so that if you fear this physiology in some way, for goodness sakes, don't ever yawn. Because it's, <laughs> it's happening all methods. the time. So then you invented a collar, you tested it on rats, and uh, those tests proved that you could stop about 83%, I think it was, of concussions. You've then now moved to uh, being a visiting research scientist at Cincinnati Children's Medical Center, I guess, and that's where you're doing more studies now on humans. Right. Um, Again, Greg Meyer and his group down at Cincinnati Children's has now moved into a larger football study, again, with Xavier and Moeller High School. But also, we have, as you had mentioned, switched over to soccer. And believe it or not, uh, one of the highest levels of concussion rate are in young women's soccer uh, field. And so we've initiated a very huge study down uh, in the same region uh, on women's soccer. So that's that stay tuned that's that should hopefully the results of that should be coming up here in the next couple of months we're um, also on the Yale rugby team we've um, we've undergone multiple studies uh, per the FDA here in the United States to make sure that we don't cause an increase in bleeding if an animal or a human were to suffer a traumatic bleed inside their brain and I had predicted that there'd be an improvement, but the FDA was concerned that, you know, at least not be any worse right. than if the collar were not on. Well, we did these studies at um, North Shore uh, University with Dr. Bales, again, the gentleman in the movie Concussion. Dr. Bales' group found a 300% reduction in brain bleed when the oh. collar was on, using large 300-pound swine pigs that had a small impactor to force a bleed. So everything seems to be going along swimmingly. We uh, have made it through the Canadian, European, and and Australian FDA equivalent, but we're a little tougher here in the United States. And so, um, like I say, we're at 27 different safety and efficacy studies. We've probably got five major universities that have touched this project. I can't even count how many investigators, PhDs, and MDs that have actually been involved so far. Now, explain the caller. It's... um I guess all it, what does it do and how does it work? How does it actually, you know, keep? Does it open up a space that muscle in our in our body? What does it do? Yeah, you know, it it appears simplistic, but I assure you, there's over five million dollars worth of engineering <laughs> that has gone into this. Um, is this is what we're calling the Kerr collar, the Q collar, the Q collar. Yeah, after. After Dr. Quinkenshot, yep. who again evolved this theory way back in 1918, um, it it basically serves to put mild compression, um, a very very trivial amount. If you reach onto the back of your hand, turn your hand over, and see one of those veins, if you reach down and just touch one of those veins until it collapses, that's the amount of pressure of the venous system of your hand. But in your jugular vein. It's one-sixth of that because there's a column of fluid under the jugular vein collapsing it already. There's a column of fluid on top of your hand making that be a pressure of about 15 to 20 millimeters of mercury. So the amount of pressure is, is astoundingly minimal. 
but you have to hit the jugular vein. So the collar is, is fashioned after that omohyoid apparatus of a woodpecker. It transects and comes across from right to left, and it dissects right directly across the same path of the omohyoid muscle and gently pushes that omohyoid muscle further into the jugular vein. Hmm. And again, it's built to do that already. If you ask any surgeon who's ever dissected that part of the neck, this omohyoid muscle is attached to your jugular. It's not close. It's attached to it. Well, God nature wouldn't do that if it was somehow harmful. Right. And and again, it all, all we had to do was just apply a little extra pressure. And I'm telling you, it's well tolerated. All of these oh. kids initially put the collar on and they go, wow, I don't know. And then they take off, run across the field, and have forgotten it the rest of the day. Uh-huh. I mean, it's certainly more comfortable than putting in devices in your mouth or putting a helmet on oh, yeah. or shoulder pads. or All of those things are incredibly, incredibly obtrusive compared to this minimal amount of pressure it, in and around the neck. And again, I, I it's looked- open in the front. So it doesn't it doesn't constrict your swallowing right. or talking or anything. It's it basically I just looked it up. It looks like a headband that women wear in their hair, and it's just around the neck. And it, uh, but I mean, really, it, it's nothing. It's almost like one of those earbud thing uh, collars that you wear to hold your earbuds. It's it's non intrusive. It really is, and it honestly, it would be easier to get that collar for my child than to go fit a mouth guard. I mean, it's oh, just put the and except that it it is fit exactly yeah. to your neck size. I mean, the one downfall, if you want to call it that, is is you're not going to be able to just pull any collar or any right. headband uh, and slap it around your neck. It is very precisely sized, and inside of it is this massively cool memory metal that no matter how many times you open it and close it, it always comes back to the same exact amount of compression. Could it be? I guess. I guess we're finding out, though, Doctor Smith, that it's it could be this simple. I mean, we you could cure something. I, the whole I was thinking, man, the NFL is ruined because we're not going to have our kids play football if they're going to keep getting concussions. And but now all of a sudden, it's a collar, and and basically well, mimicking. You, I was fear- woodpeckers. Yeah, I was fearful of the same thing. But uh, last year, my. Uh, youngest son was a senior in high school and wanted to switch from soccer over to football. I was actually okay with it so long as he wore the collar. Mm-hmm. And he just did great. And, of course, he knows the science and would never walk on the field without it. So it it really is, quote-unquote, that simple, but that that's what makes it kind of elegant. And, again, yeah. I didn't invent anything. Matt. I just identified how God and nature did it and duplicated it. How many more solutions are there out there by just paying attention like you did, Dr. Smith? I mean, other problems, well, cancers, remember, other Velcro issues. Velcro was invented. Yeah. yeah. Velcro came from a little nettle, a little thing that a burr, mm-hmm. as the inventor was walking across the field, and he couldn't get it out of his sock. And the next thing you know, we have a, a you know, gangbuster Velcro. So it's called biomimetics. I am somewhat of an inventor in many other realms, but I always look to see how God and nature did it first. Uh, they've had billions of years to get it right. Right. Well, and it's interesting because you can tell some of the theories that have been used is, you know, just softening the helmet, adding more cushioning to helmets, all of this te- technology for the helmet. And yet it it was really more about the the venous structure in the neck 
being able to, to keep the fluids in the brain. Well, right. I mean, Greg Meyer puts it very nicely. He says, well, wait a minute, you already have a helmet. It's called a skull. Right. Why are you putting a helmet on top of a helmet? Why would you think that somehow is going to alter the fluid dynamics differently? So it, it histori- I'm not knocking helmets. I, right. they, they're very necessary, and they do what they're intended and engineered to do, but they do not alter the sloshing of the fluids within the brain. So they're their likelihood of being able to make any appreciable you know, dent in this problem, it's, it's very small. Does, where do you see this going in the future? And, and how long do you think it'll be before you can pass all of the, uh, the U.S. standards enough to, to make this just totally mainstream? Well, interestingly enough, I was sitting in my home uh, reading an article about a, a, a number of football players in the Canadian Football League having deafening effects to the ear. And right then, a woodpecker started smacking its head against the tree, uh, the tree next to my window. And I just looked over at the woodpecker and I said, well, you, you must be deaf. Because if these football players in one right. season have changes in their hearing, well, the woodpecker's got to be deaf. So it turns out, Googled it right there on the spot, it turns out that woodpeckers have some of the highest hearing of all creatures. They actually figure out where their food is underneath the bark by listening for the bee larvae burrowing under the bark. So obviously there was a mechanism that God put in there also. And why build two fascinating mechanisms? I immediately assumed that there must be a connection between the intracranial space and the inner ear, and it turns out there's three of them. So we set out to see whether or not my theory that we might have a device to protect hearing is accurate. So back up to Dr. Bale's lab, uh, a colonel, uh, Dr. Brian Sindelar, um, actually started doing these studies, and they put blast waves into rats again and started to measure the actual number of hair cells inside the damaged ears of these little rats. And there was a 94% protection to Hmm. the ears of these little animals. Oh, my heavens. By putting little rat collars on. <laughs> so we're moving right into the hearing space now. We really, truly believe that this will also dramatically reduce hearing damage as well. Boy. So there's, I mean, again, another lesson from nature. Just pay attention. Absolutely. And right. thank, thank well, heavens remember, for woodpeckers. Well, think about it. Why do bats actually hang upside down inside a bat case? Oh, to keep why didn't fluids in their ask, head. Why do they... They actually do. Inside those bat caves, especially some of the Mexican bat caves, there are up to 2 million bats hanging from the ceilings inside those caves. And they screech in order to echolocate at sometimes 120 to 150 decibels of sound. And then you multiply that by 200 million bats. Wow. How do they protect their own ears? Right. Well, hanging upside down. Now I think we know. That is... fill up that space, the energy cannot be absorbed. It goes right through them. Love it. Basic. Yeah, I mean, it's again, cool. it's really cool. Well, we appreciate your insight. And, uh, man, thank you. The, the idea that uh, we can all play football again, that's pretty cool. You saved my I kids' lives, so. David. David Smith is his name. Again, you're going to – what's the best way to reach you, David? Well, I'm on staff uh, on sort of an honorary position down at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. That's okay. probably the best way to reach out to us. Um, and Dr. Greg Meyer has um, been basically fielding most of the questions. He's the, the great science mind and trying to prove or disprove some of the aspects of this technology. Great stuff. Dr. David Smith, thank you so much. All right. 
helping you see the good in the world. There it is. The lessons from the woodpecker might be helping us with our brain concussions, but also hearing. Just, just need to wear a collar. Get some more fluid up in the brain. Keep it up there. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What happens when you allow yourself to be influenced by others? A, a breakthrough. Dr. David Smith creates a, a breakthrough, and his, uh, his team there, Dr. Greg Meyer as well, they, they're creating a breakthrough by simply paying attention to nature, to a, a woodpecker, for heaven's sakes. And by allowing yourself to be influenced and to learn and to ask, just ask the basic question, how does a woodpecker do it? And how does, uh, you know, a mountain goat or a, a ram bang heads and not have concussions? And isn't it crazy? God, nature has already created the answer if we can just allow nature to play its course. How much are we missing in our own lives, in our own world? Because we're not open to asking these questions. We, we are so stuck in our way of thinking. The way to protect the brain is you wear a helmet. Hello? Sure, that's one way. There's other ways. Apparently now you can wear a, a collar that keeps fluid up in your brain. And with more fluid, the energy can dissipate through the brain instead of concussing and, and, and uh, bouncing the brain around. Plus, it's going to impact hearing. Why do bats hang upside down? I don't know. The good doctor, though, is paying attention. Do you pay attention to the people in your life? Do you pay attention to the things you don't understand? Or do you just sit and continue to think the exact same way you always think? Maybe there's a lesson here. In order to be influ- or in order to influence people and to create real change in the world, you have to be open to being influenced. And as we just learned from some researchers, man, Mother Nature can influence you. Even the woodpecker can influence us. So keep open, remain open. Remember, you can't know everything. And sometimes when you're confidently sure you do, that's the problem. It keeps us from truly learning. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More information, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show.